Right, friends. Well, please do turn with me now to Matthew chapter 12 and the verses that we read together. It's the last section of this passage I want to look at in particular, verses 18 to 21. We'll, we'll do a bit before we get there. But the reason for that is I find that people are increasingly feeling as if somehow their lives are irrelevant to what's going on around them and a feeling that the church is irrelevant to what's happening in the world. And as much as we say to ourselves, no, no, that's not true, we see numbers declining and we see godlessness rising in our generation. And sometimes that can bring quite a sense of discouragement. But also, when in our Christian lives things have not gone as they should have gone for a whole variety of reasons, we can start to feel as if perhaps we have just been put on the shelf or put to one side. As if somehow even in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ we've become an irrelevance. And what I want us to do is to tackle that a little bit tonight and to recognise the attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly towards those who find themselves bruised and battered and hurt. Now in the world, it's very easy to think that we are just like a cog in a wheel. You know, large companies, well, as far as they're concerned, individuals like you and me, they're just consumers, aren't they? We exist to buy their products, and if we don't have the money, they're not interested in us at all. Their concern is publicity and market share and public profile, not you and not me. And the CEO of an international company would never stop any, everything and just come and check that we're okay. Governments, you know, to governments, individuals like you and me are just citizens. We are to be governed for the good of the nation. Thank God for that. But we really feel as if people in government are concerned about us as individuals. They're very concerned about power and governance. They're concerned about big decisions that affect the majority of the people. But we would never dream that if we had a problem, the Prime Minister or the Home Secretary would come round our house and help us to sort it out. But what about the church? And what about the Lord Jesus Christ? Because there is a danger that we can feel irrelevant there as well. That we've got so little to offer, or that things have gone so badly wrong, that somehow we no longer have any part to play. And perhaps even the Lord has no real interest in us anymore. Now that's the issue that we get in verses 18 to 21, which is a quote from Isaiah chapter 42. And what we see in this passage, and then particularly in those verses, is that the Lord Jesus Christ isn't concerned with advertising and public profile and shouting down all other voices so that he gains some sort of reputation in the world. That's not the issue. What the Lord Jesus Christ does is that he works quietly and often in unseen and unrecognised ways, caring for and strengthening his own people. So that's what I want us, by God's grace, to take a hold of tonight. Now we'll build up to it. We'll start in verse 19, okay? 
the Lord Jesus has a different kind of public profile from the way the world approaches things. Verse 19 says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. This is obviously a prophecy of the coming of Christ. See, Christ doesn't need the world's acclaim, and he doesn't need the world's methods. In the beginning of Matthew chapter 12, it's obvious to see just how different the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was from what the people around him expected. Uh, He's criticised in the early part of Matthew chapter 12 by the Pharisees because of his behaviour on the Sabbath. His disciples eat grain as they walk into the fields. Then he heals a man with a withered hand and he asks them, what man is it among you who has one sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, he will not lay hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. What's happening there is that the Lord Jesus Christ is doing good at the level of one individual. That's his ministry. That's his focus. That's the person he's concerned about. That's what he's doing. Doing good to one individual. And yet the Pharisees seek to destroy him. And that happens in verse 15. What the Lord does is he withdraws from them. No great fanfare, just quietly moves on. And then the crowds follow him. And when the crowds follow him in verse 15, he heals all their sick. Doing good to the individuals who come to him one at a time. But rather, at this stage in his ministry, than wanting to publicise it, he asks the crowd not to make him known. Now the point I want us to get out of this is that there's something about the way the Lord Jesus Christ conducts himself that's very different from the ways that companies do and that governments do. And also very different from the way that sadly some churches do. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. The Lord Jesus Christ doesn't win victories in people's lives by force. Okay? Um, In John chapter 6, as I mentioned this morning, uh, the people would have taken him by force and made him king, but Jesus departed from them. At the garden, when Peter drew a sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, the Lord Jesus told him to put the sword away. He said that he could have called on his father to send more than 12 legions of angels to deliver him from his arrest. Um, Or that he could have cried out to be delivered from the cross. But he did not. Because the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is not of this world. It doesn't advance by force. And particularly what that means The Lord Jesus Christ never constrains people against their will. Rather, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is a spiritual kingdom made up of willing subjects who by the work of the Spirit of God become convinced of the truth of the gospel, become aware of their need of salvation and are made willing in the day of his power. They gladly come to trust in Christ And they follow the Saviour as willing and albeit unworthy servants. Now that's the way the gospel works. And that's what's happening today. 
The gospel doesn't advance in the nation by mean of legislation or advertising or worldly methods. It advances quietly as the Lord Jesus Christ wins victories in the hearts of men and women. See, there's a problem in the human will, isn't there? The human will, the fallen, sinful human will, doesn't submit itself to the Lord Jesus Christ. You will not come to me that you might have life. But you never change the will from the outside in. You can only change the will from the inside out. We need a new heart if we are to have a new will. You might know the story of a little boy. His mum said to him, sit down, John. He didn't listen. John, I told you to sit down. Third time, John, sit down. I'm not telling you again. And John sat down. And then his father noticed a look on little John's face and said, John, what's wrong? And John said, I'm standing up on the inside. You know, you can't change the will from the outside in. And the same is true with the gospel. You can't by force bring somebody to a, a willing and glad trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It has to come from the inside, from the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the heart. He never forces, he never crushes, but he convicts and he calls and he saves. Okay, he doesn't argue for the sake of it. That's the other thing. When the hypocrisy of the Pharisees is exposed in the early part of John 12, the Lord doesn't stand around rubbing their noses in it. That's not his concern. His concern isn't fundamentally to win arguments. His concern is to win people. And the problem with our minds and our understandings, the darkness that we have, well, the Lord Jesus exposes that and he shines the light of the truth on us and in us. When he does that, he exposes our darkness. But not to humiliate us and parade us on a stage like fools. You can't argue somebody into the kingdom of God. What must happen is that the Lord Jesus Christ has to win us by enlightening us. Not just on the outside, but on the inside. So that we come to accept the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and embrace them. You know the story? You put a blind man in a dark room. What can he see? Nothing. You turn all the lights on. So you have a blind man in a room full of light. What can he see? Nothing. Because the problem isn't just that it's dark on the outside. The problem is that it's dark on the inside. The Lord has to come as he does in Acts 16 and open the heart of Lydia so that she might receive the words that are spoken by Paul. It's a sovereign work of grace on the inside. Argumentation never gets us there. The third thing, the Lord Jesus doesn't need showy, sensational publicity. Um, the posters and the claims that the advertisers put up all the time appeal to our senses. What you need is a flasher car and nicer shoes and better health. That's what they tell us. But the Lord Jesus Christ has no interest in that kind of approach. Because he knows that the human heart can't be brought to hate sin and to love righteousness, to repent 
and to believe by the church employing a good PR company or having a good social media influencer to present things in the most inoffensive way. What has to happen is that the heart is changed so that sin becomes hateful and Christ and his salvation becomes precious. And that requires more than an appeal to our human desires in the way the advertisers work. It requires a new heart. Many people followed the Lord Jesus Christ for the physical bread, but they turned away from him when he offered the bread of life. You know why? They had no taste for it. The problem is on the inside. So, the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't quarrel. He calmly presents the truth. The Lord Jesus Christ doesn't cry out. He quietly goes about his business. And nobody hears his voice in the streets. But from person to person, individually and personally, the Lord Jesus Christ speaks and convicts and saves. It's a personal work of grace to bring somebody to salvation. And it's a personal work of comfort and strengthening when the Lord Jesus Christ deals with us and helps us. Mark chapter 10, the story of Bartimaeus. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. The Son of God stood still. The reason? Bartimaeus. That's the reason. In John chapter 4, the Son of God sits by the well at noontime, when the sun is at his hottest. Do you know why? It's the woman from Sachar. The Lord Jesus Christ goes about his work personally and individually. That's the way the kingdom of God is built. So, that's our first thing. Okay, a different kind of public profile. The second thing, verse 18, a different kind of saviour. Behold, my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I'll put my spirit upon him and he'll proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Christ doesn't need the world's approval and he doesn't need the world's power. The Lord Jesus Christ is not dependent on worldly means to gain a following. He's got other resources in hand. That's what that verse is all about. Number one, he's the servant of the Lord. He's working God's way. He's come to do the Father's will, and he does the Father's will in exactly the way the Father desires. The Lord Jesus Christ makes no mistakes in his dealings with men and women. He makes no mistakes in the pages of the Bible, and he makes no mistakes in 2,000 years of subsequent history. The way the Lord Jesus Christ deals with people is pleasing to the Father. He knows exactly how to deal with men and women and reach them and save them. Also, he's pleasing to God. My beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. Now, we know that the Father was pleased with the Son from all eternity. Of course he was. But specifically in this passage and other passages, what we see is that the Father is pleased with the Son in his saving work, his mediatorial work, to use the jargon. Think about it. We have two recorded instances in the Gospels when the Father speaks from heaven and his voice is understood. Okay? Number one is baptism. Suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, 
This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. At this point, at the beginning of his public ministry for sinners, at the point where he associates himself with sinners and takes their place, that is an act on the part of the son with which I am well pleased. The father delights in the saving work of the son. The second one is the transfiguration. When the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking with Elijah and Moses about the exodus, that's the word, the departure that he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And what we read is, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. The work that the son has committed himself to, to go to Jerusalem, his departure by means of the cross, it's well-pleasing to the Father. The third thing, he's equipped by the Holy Spirit. I'll put my spirit upon him and he'll proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Now the Holy Spirit descended upon the Lord Jesus Christ in bodily form at his baptism and he did that to equip him for his ministry. It was in the power of the Holy Spirit that the Lord Jesus Christ went about doing good. You read that in Acts 10 and verse 38. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit that the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was energized. So the closed hearts were opened and dead sinners were raised to life. But the focus of it, the main focus of it, is to bring men and women back to God. Forgiven and washed and gladly under the Lordship of Christ. At the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, Isaiah 61 is quoted, isn't it? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Why? Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. He's equipped by the Spirit of God for the work of salvation. That's how it succeeds. Not by worldly means. The Lord doesn't need them. He has proper divine resources. He does God's work in God's way by the irresistible power of the Spirit of God. But notice the first word of verse 18. Behold. Behold my servant whom I've chosen. My beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. The Son of God has come into the world to seek and to save the lost. He's come into the world to do the will of the Father. Behold, behold, look to Jesus Christ and what do you see? What you see is Christ alone taking upon himself the great saving work of God. The most important thing in the history of the world. What you see is the Father delighting in him as he does that. What you see is the Spirit of God equipping him and anointing him so that he might be mighty to save. When we look at Jesus Christ, that's what we should see. And that's our confidence and that's our hope. That the Lord Jesus Christ is mighty to save. He doesn't need any of the other stuff. And whatever opposition might be raised to the kingdom of God and to the gospel, the problem is they can't overcome God. 
And so ultimately it's irrelevant. The Lord Jesus Christ is building his church. The gates of hell will not and cannot prevail against it. Because the Lord Jesus Christ himself is mighty to save. Now, the third thing I want us to think about here is to make this a little bit more personal. Okay? And that's what we have in verse 20. Where you have a different kind of care. A different kind of salvation. We've thought about how the Lord Jesus Christ works, what his concerns are, how he's able to do it. Okay, when the rubber hits the road in the lives of fallible, broken people like me and you, is it true that we're just irrelevant? And is it true that the Lord just puts us on the side that he doesn't care? Well, here's verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. You see, not only does Christ not need the world's acclaim or methods, and he doesn't need the world's approval or power, but also he doesn't focus on the world's priorities. Multinational companies have got no interest in you if you've got no money. Clubs and societies have got no interest in you if you haven't got the time and the energy and the membership fee to join. But the Lord Jesus Christ addresses things differently. He's come to serve the weak and the needy, the ones that other people give up on and the ones that are in danger of giving up on themselves. And he does that powerfully by the Holy Spirit. And when he does that, the Father delights in it. So if we get ourselves into situations in our life where we think that we've got so little to offer or that things have gone so badly wrong that we've got no part to play anymore and we fear that the Lord no longer has any real interest in us, what we need to grasp from this passage is the intention of the Lord Jesus Christ towards us even then. He is filled with understanding and compassion and he will bring even us through to victory Christians are not always strong we know that don't we um, we learn it because it's the truth of the Bible but the reality is we learn it best by personal experience um, the first time we come across Christians who are not us, who prove not to be strong and who fail, it can produce a mixed sense of horror and anger. How could they? When things get a bit closer home, often we find our reaction towards it is different. It's not so much horror and anger. It's more a matter of amazement and despair. But the truth is, Christians are not always strong. Number one, there are bruised reeds even among the trees of God. You notice the reference to bruised reeds in verse 20? Now, a reed isn't the strongest thing in and of itself, you know? It wouldn't be very good to make a, wooden, to make a walking stick out of, a reed. Not a walking stick you could rely on and put your weight on. But a bruised reed is even more fragile. A bruised reed has been damaged 
by some force from the outside, you know? Maybe some animals or some people have trodden on it and bruised it. The walls of the reed have been compromised, and so its strength have been lost. And there can be Christians who go through certain ordeals in their life, and as a result of that, they've lost their strength, they feel useless, and they don't know if they'll ever recover. And because of that, it seems to them at times as if they may be relegated to life on the sidelines, and they fear that there'll never be any help to anyone else ever again. Now that can happen in a number of ways. The devil can do it when he attacks us with his doubts. Doubts that leave us unsure about our salvation. Doubts that leave us unsure about our usefulness in the church. Circumstances can do it. When circumstances in our lives whip up and they batter us and they take our energy out and they leave us drained. And in some situations they even leave us on the edge of a breakdown. But God himself can do it as well. Sometimes God can step into the situation and deal with a Christian by means of conviction, making us so aware of the sin in our lives that we can't deny it, and putting his hand so heavily upon us that it seems as if our vitality is dried up and we've become like a pool in a hot summer that's just evaporated away. And in that situation... People can be tempted to pass us by and overlook us because we've got nothing to give. There's no point wasting our time with them. They're a burden rather than a help. And so if it was left to them, they would just snap us off and move on to somebody better. Now, I don't know if you've ever been on the receiving end of any of that. Those attacks of the devil, those life circumstances... God's dealings with us, the unfair treatment of Christian people. But when it happens, it hurts. It hurts. But the Lord Jesus Christ knows. And the Lord Jesus Christ tells us, a bruised reed, he will not break. Second thing is, there are smoking wicks, even amongst God's lights. Now, for a lamp to burn brightly, the wick needs to be kept in good order. You know, these are oil lamps back in the day. And that lamp needs to have a good supply of oil if it's going to burn brightly. If you've got a smoking wick, it gives off more smoke than light. There's still some fire in it smouldering away, you know. But it seems to do more harm than good. Because rather than bringing light into the room, it just brings smoke into the room. And everything seems to be worse as a result. Well, the problem with this is on the inside, you know. Reeds are bruised from the outside. But wicks... They start to smolder because of problems on the inside. A lack of oil is a big problem for a lamp. A lack of oil. Sometimes when people are newly converted, they've only just begun in the Christian life, and they start to think, once the initial joy perhaps passes, that there's so much in their lives that's out of shape that they think their lives will never be sorted out. Sometimes people have been Christians for years, perhaps many years, but have never come to terms with the reality of besetting sins in their lives, which can take a whole variety of forms, from irrespectable sins, you know, drink problems, sexual issues, through to much more respectable sins, like anxiety or anger or a willingness to judge. Maybe we find that in company with other people, people slip back, you know, 
uh, in our work situation, that's the way the situation has always been. I can never change now. Things can never be different. A third way this arises is when Christians backslide and we grieve the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God withdraws and the light in our lives that used to burn brightly begins to burn dim and in its place our lives start to be filled with the smoke of our sins. Now when that happens, it can leave Christians feeling fearful. Fearful that perhaps they've never really been converted if things are so out of shape. Or fearful that they will never be able to burn brightly. Or perhaps never be able to burn brightly again. The smoke's got in our eyes. And we can't see how we can possibly turn the situation around. When others see us, others tend to dismiss us and even avoid us. Because after all, the smoke is offensive, isn't it? The smoke gets in their eyes, it gets in their nostrils. It leaves them uncomfortable. And so other Christians contend to write us off and snuff us out. Again, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. But it's deeply damaging to a child of God when other Christians cast them off in such a way. But from this passage, the big thing here is this. Whatever other people may do, they might break a bruised reed and they might snuff out a smoldering wick. But the Lord Jesus Christ is concerned for the weak and for the struggling. Organizations focus on the majority. Christ cares for the individual. If he has a hundred sheep and one goes astray, he leaves the 99 and he goes after the one. And when he finds it, he lifts it and he puts it on his shoulders and he carries it home. The concern of Christ in the life of every one of his children is for perseverance and fellowship with God and Christ-likeness and fruit-bearing and joy. That's the concern of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he works in our lives to produce. So number one, he doesn't overstress the weak. A bruised reed he will not break. When he convicts us, it's not to crush us, it's to deliver us from our sins. The purpose of conviction is always to lead to repentance, because repentance leads to forgiveness. Psalm 32 when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you. My iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. Conviction is designed to lead us to repentance. And repentance is the door to forgiveness. The Lord does not overstress the weak. Second thing the Lord does is when other people have bruised us, the Lord has his way of putting us in the hospital. See, there's a place for rest, physical rest. You get it in Mark 6. He said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. 
There were many coming and going, and I didn't even have time to eat. Uh, if we find ourselves particularly burdened, you know, there's a place for physical rest. And an unwillingness to rest has often got an unhealthy motive behind it. We think that the work depends on us. We are concerned what people will think of us if we don't keep a good face on. We are concerned that the Lord will be displeased with us. But the reality is very different. He's the one who calls us aside to rest a while. And we have to learn to be faithful to the Lord in doing what is right before God. Different things at different times in different circumstances. There's a time to work. There's a time to rest. And when we rest well, the Lord uses it to restore our strength and our vitality. There's also a place for recuperation and being restored. The Lord's my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. What a lovely verse. He restores my soul. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. The Lord can work in such a way that even in the presence of all the problems and difficulties that have stressed us so much, we're able to rest and to feast and to find strength, even in their presence. And there's a place to trust, you know. Because when other people expect too much of us, the Lord measures the load to our strength. And if he requires something of us that we don't have strength for, we can trust the Lord to give it. Because he never sends us into his service at our own expense. He always provides for us exactly what we need. You see, the Lord doesn't overstress the weak. And he doesn't dismiss the failing. Smoking flax, he will not quench. Now it's the Lord who's redeemed us. And it's the Lord who will keep us. The one that saved us from the punishment of our sins in justification is the one who delivers us from the power of our sins in sanctification. Those two works are equally the work of Christ. Those two works are equally secured by the cross of Christ. Our salvation from beginning to end is of the Lord. He's come to call his name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. Not just forgive them their sins and let them carry on regardless, but deliver them from the love of sin, deliver them from the power of sin, and eventually deliver them even from the presence of sin. But the lesson we need to learn, and sometimes we learn hard, is that the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives is increasingly to make sin our enemy and increasingly to make himself precious. And so when the flame in the lamp of our lives is burning low and starting to smoke, the lamp needs attention, and that means two things. The wick has to be tended to by means of repentance, number one. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself has to give us new supplies of oil, number two. Repentance. Repentance is a key issue for Christians not just in conversion, but in the Christian life. And as we come to discover more and more about ourselves as we go on in the Christian life, the answer is always 
repentance. Turning from it to God with confidence and dependence on the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. That's the pattern, repentance. But it needs to be a repentance that's as deep as our sins. And that's the issue often with besetting sin. That we feel bad, we say sorry, we go back to it. Repentance needs to reach as deeply into our heart as the sin does. So that these things can be rooted up. And the Lord knows how to do that. He knows how to take us there. But bear in mind, everything that happens to us in our lives, all our failings, all our mistakes, they're never surprises to the Lord. He knew the truth about us in eternity when he chose us. He knew the truth about us on the cross when he saved us. And he's committed himself to save us and to sanctify us anyway. But as we go on in the Christian life, we go on in repentance. There's no other way. Second thing, love is the motive. You see, to repent and to turn to God, it can be difficult when we feel that our hearts and our lives are full of thick black smoke and we've made such a terrible mistake. But the motive to return to Christ always flows from the cross. Uh, Romans 2 and verse 4. It's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. Striking phrase. It's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. The law and fear never drives anybody to repentance. Because repentance isn't just turning from sin. Repentance is turning to God. Why would we turn to the God who's angry with us for our sins? That's what we're afraid of in the first place. That's where mercy and grace and goodness step in. What was it that broke the heart of Peter after his denial of Christ? Wasn't it the Lord turning and looking at him and him remembering the words of the Lord? When you have returned, strengthen your brethren. Wasn't it the fact that the Lord knew in his pride that all his promises never to deny him were false and empty, but the Lord knowing that loved him anyway? And isn't that always the issue with a backslider? Hosea 14. I will heal their backslidings. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from him. I will be like the dew to Israel. He'll grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. His branches shall spread. His beauty shall be like an olive tree. And his fragrance like Lebanon. All that talk about restoration. Lengthening the roots and being beautiful again. It starts with this. I will heal their backslidings. The Lord can do that. I will love them freely. For my anger is turned away. That's why we return to the Lord. It's the love of the Lord that draws us. It's the love of the Lord that wins us from our sins and our failures. It's the love of the Lord that brings us back. The Lord loves the smoking wick. And the third thing, we need oil. And the oil to shine flows from Christ himself. He doesn't quench the smoking flax. He feeds it. He feeds it. And what that means is, when we are guilty, there is forgiveness of sins with Jesus Christ. And when we are distant and afraid, there's acceptance with God through Jesus Christ. 
And when we are caught up and troubled and bound and feel like we are captives and slaves, there's grace with Jesus Christ to break the power of cancel sin and to set the prisoner free. And when we view the future with fear and think, even if the Lord were to receive me back again, what about next week? What about next month? What about next year? The reality is that there's power with Jesus Christ to keep us because he's promised of all that the Father has given me, I have not lost one, but I'll raise him up at the last day. As the Lord Jesus Christ empties us of ourselves, what he does is teach us to depend on him in simple believing confidence. Be confident of this very thing, says the Apostle Paul, that he who has begun a good work in you will carry it on until the day of Jesus Christ. There's a hymn, the work that his goodness began, the arm of his strength is complete. His promise is yea and amen, and never was forfeited yet. The Lord knew all about us when he saved us. The Lord didn't look at any one of us and say, that's a project which is too difficult. That's a person which is too far gone. That's a heart that is too twisted. That's a life that's too corrupt. The Lord Jesus Christ said, I'll love. I'll pay the price. I'll save. I'll keep. I'll sanctify. And on the last day, that broken reed and that smoking wick will see me and be like me and will rejoice in me forever. That's the issue. And the last thing, till he sends forth justice to victory. Christ will win the victory, even in our lives. Now, there are some Christians who seem to have little strength all their lives. But a little strength drawn from Jesus Christ is enough to carry us through. We need to remember that. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door. No one can shut it. For you have a little strength and have kept my word and haven't denied my name. A little strength from Jesus Christ will carry us through. If we try to walk in the ways of God and wish we could do more, the Lord knows that. He knows we'd walk faster if only we could. And who knows what the Lord might give us to do if we just trust him. But Nian tells a story. Um, he says, uh, as somebody is ill in the house, so the master of the house sends his servant to get the doctor. And the servant goes on a horse, but it's an old nag. And when he gets back, he says, I'm sorry, master, I would have come back sooner, but the horse, the horse was so slow. I would have gone faster if I could. That's true, isn't it? Bunyan uses it in illustration of prayer. But it's true, isn't it? Lord, I would go faster if I could. I feel my weakness. I need your help. Undertake for me. Don't snap me off. Don't snap me off. Bind up the brokenhearted. Pour in the oil and the wine. Keep me for yourself. And lead me home. See, if our hope is in God, and we would shine more brightly if only we could, he'll keep the flame alive and as we stick close to the Lord in repentance and look to the Lord for grace who knows what victories in our lives he might win it was Saul the persecutor who became Paul the apostle 
It was Peter the denier that became Peter the rock. It was John Mark who deserted Paul and Barnabas, of whom Paul subsequently said, bring Mark because he's good for me for service. How did that happen? Because Christ didn't break the bruised reed and he didn't extinguish the smoking wick. So as believers, we mustn't despair. We mustn't despair in our own lives and we mustn't despair in the lives of other believers. We must encourage them and help them. We are in the hands of the master and the master's purposes in our lives are good. Well, store it away in your hearts. And even if you think, oh, I'm not sure that all of that really applies to me, the day may come when it does. And when it does and your circumstances have changed, the Lord Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He will not break the bruised reed and he will not extinguish the smoking flax until he brings forth justice 